Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to Wednesday. We're halfway through the week and halfway through Advent. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for the 13th of December. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, consumer prices in the United States edged 0.1% higher in November from the previous month after being unchanged in October as higher shelter costs offset a decline in the gasoline index. Economists had been expecting the reading to remain unchanged. Core consumer prices, which excludes volatile items such as food and energy, rose by 0.3% in November after a 0.2% increase in October, also in line with market forecasts. The annual core consumer price inflation rate stood at an over two-year low of 4% in November, unchanged from October and matching market forecasts. The Fed is widely expected to keep its benchmark rate at the highest level in two decades, as policymakers assess the lagged impact of their aggressive series of hikes since early 2022. This week's meeting will also see policymakers update their interest rate forecasts for next year, known as the dot plot. At the conclusion yesterday of China's annual Central Economic Work Conference, which sets economic targets for the coming year, state media reported that China will focus on making concerted efforts to expand domestic demand in 2024. China's leaders committed to a nine-point plan to revive the economy with a focus on high-quality developments. According to officials present, favourable conditions outweigh unfavourable factors in China's development. And regarding the economic work next year, the meeting called for efforts to pursue progress while ensuring stability, echoing the words of the Politburo last week. The Federal Reserve should be required to stress test US banks' ability to withstand a potential sudden loss of market access to China, according to a congressional committee. The Fed should also assess the impact on financial markets of sanctions against Chinese financial companies in the event of a conflict between the US and China. The proposed legislative change was among dozens of recommendations in a report released on Tuesday from the US House of Representatives' China Committee about enhancing US economic competitiveness to counter the rise of China. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. And with a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you have any questions or comments, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. US stocks closed higher for a fourth day on Tuesday, despite new data highlighting stubborn inflationary pressures. The three major US stock indices closed at fresh 52-week highs for a third session in a row. The S&P 500 bounced back from an initial dip to close half a percent higher at 4,644, its highest level since January 2022, and that brought its gain for 2023 to almost 21%. The Dow gained 173 points, or half a percent, to 36,578, its highest level since April 2022. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.7% to 14,533, its highest level since January 2022. The 10-year Treasury yield ended the session three basis points lower at 4.21%. Treasury bills with shorter maturities, which are more sensitive to upcoming rate decisions by the US Central Bank, they rose and widened the yield curve's inversion. The two-year yield closed one basis point higher at 4.73%. 
The US dollar index ended the session a third of a percent lower at 103.81. The yen saw the biggest strength in the G10 space, rising half a percent to 145.48. Offshore yuan was unchanged at 7.1938 renminbi against the dollar after China released its 2024 priorities for economic policy. Spot gold rallied intraday but was unable to get back to $2,000 before fading back to $1,980 an ounce, down 0.1% on the day. Brent crude oil futures dropped by 3.7% to $73.24 per barrel on Tuesday. That's the lowest since June the 27th, as investors remain concerned about abundant supply and weakening demand. Hong Kong stocks rose by the most in three weeks, ahead of the Central Economic Work Conference. The Hang Seng Index rebounded off an almost 14-month low to close up 173 points, or 1.1%, at 16,375, closing higher for the first time in four sessions. The Hang Seng Tech Index climbed 1.7%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite added 0.4%, regaining the 3,000 level to 3,003. And the Hang Seng Index is projected to open 60 points lower this morning at around 16,310, with investors disappointed about the lack of concrete measures from China's Central Economic Work Conference. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Wednesday morning, let's welcome our guests. We have with us Enzio von Fall, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Very good morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, James Wong, who is Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. Now, the US core inflation remains steady in November. Consumer prices in the US edged 0.1% higher in November from the previous month after being unchanged in October as high shelter costs offset a decline in the gasoline index. Economists had been expecting the reading to remain unchanged. Prices of shelter climbed 0.4% after rising a third of a percent in the previous month, and they were the largest factor in the monthly increase. On an annual basis, the headline rate edged lower to 3.1%. That was in line with the expectations, and also marginally below October's 3.2% rate. The annual core consumer price inflation rate in the United States, which excludes volatile items such as food and energy, stood at an over two-year low of 4% in November, unchanged from October, and that matched market forecasts. Um, Enzio, perhaps I can ask you to to kick off. We'll get on to what the Fed wants to make of this or might make of this in a moment. But in terms of the data itself, do you think inflation is is under control in the United States? No, I don't. I think that the demand-driven inflation is because the Fed is quite correctly following the textbook that if you create an excess demand for money by tightening monetary policy, then, of course, demand sinks off and then there's less pressure on, on people, less people going shopping in effect, basically. Right. So, But my real problem is the supply side inflation, in the in particularly in the U.S., driven by weather, leading to higher food prices, wars, leading to supply chain bottlenecks and laziness, on, especially by the entitled youth, leading to, quote-unquote, tight labor markets. In other words, wages rising because people don't really want to work at all, so there's just very little supply of labor around. I think those factors will stay for quite some time, and that leads me to the 
supposition that there's going to be a supply-side stagflation in the U.S. next year, a mild supply-side stagflation. Really? Because that's uh, that's not what most economists are predicting at, at the moment. They're sort of predicting that uh, the economy is going to escape a recession and, and inflation is going to gradually glide down to, to 2%. Yes, I, I hope that they're right. I don't see the um, I, I just don't see the supply side side of the equation going down, and that then would lead me to believe that these rates will re- will remain higher longer. And that's also what Jay Powell keeps saying. Then the then the futures markets bet, which they think, as you wrote, I think that they want a 1.25 percent or 1.35 percentage point cut in mm. Fed funds this year. I'm not buying that this okay. coming year. James, when you, when you look at the data, do you feel happy that uh, inflation is under control or do you think there's still a way to go? I mean, we're down, down quite a lot now, aren't we, from the highs uh, we saw earlier in the year? Yeah, the headline certainly is, but the core uh, CPI is still 4%, which is above the, uh, the mandate of 2%, and it's a long way to go. And uh, I'm just thinking Fed is kind of losing control over their game of uh, uh, expectation management. And uh, Mm. I think Jay Powell has done a great job during the past year, uh, after the Jackson Hole meeting last year. uh, He's been able to manipulate the market and move the market the way he wants for the entire year or so. And uh, right now, uh, especially before the blackout period uh, of this policy meeting, I think Jay Powell and uh, and his uh, his uh, FOMC members are are kind of uh, losing this game because uh, remember after the last CPI print, uh, a lot of Fed officials come came out and uh, claimed that they see a rate cut or they see a uh, a ceiling of uh, rate rise rate raise uh, for for this uh, rate hike period, and uh, then uh, the the market of course celebrated and the ten uh, year and thirty year yields dropped. By 80, 80, point, 80 bips or, or even ninety bips in in about a month, and then uh, we've seen some uh, jobs data came out, and then we can we see Mary Daly turn against herself and claim that there might be another rate hike mm-hmm. uh, down the road, and uh, we saw Jay Powell came out two Fridays before and uh, tried to uh, persuade the market that he is being he's leaning towards uh, being hawkish. But uh, the market did not buy it at all, and uh, mm. I think with the CPI print, uh, especially the uh, the month over month, see uh, headline CPI uh, being up 0.0 percent, uh, he's gonna may be be making a strong statement towards being hawkish uh, at the policy meeting or at the press conference. Uh, at least uh, the, the the Fed is gonna suppress the market optimism. By uh, by uh, mm. show them the uh, the dot plot weapon again, mm. uh, because right now we're we're still seeing that the 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 median dot plot is about uh, is pricing in about uh, less than fifty bips of rate cuts next year, while the market is expecting about one hundred fourteen bips of rate mm. cuts next year. So the well, the, it's not the first time we saw such a uh, a gap between the market expectation and what Fed uh, was thinking. And uh, it, it basically happened uh, happened last time uh, last last year this time, mm-hmm. and uh, so, th- that time I, I think the Fed won. But this time we're gonna see. But I, I still I think the Fed is gonna, uh, especially Jay Powell, is gonna make a very hawkish statement at the press conference. 
And, and yeah, what happens to that old adage, don't fight the Fed? The markets seem to be determined to take the Fed head on at the moment, because um, if, if the markets are right, every single mm. Fed policymaker, according to their dot plot, is, is wrong um, at the moment. So there's quite a big disconnect, isn't there, between the two? Well, you as an old market fox, tell me what the markets are these days, Peter. I think they're full of algorithms that are driven by quant jocks sitting in the back rooms. <laughs> and then the then the live people like you and I and James, we then are kind of more the herd than the leaders. So I, I think that the market, the, the, the fundamental texture of the market has changed so much that whether the traders follow or don't, I think it's the algorithms in the back and the, those are done by extremely bright probably young kids who are programmers. Mm. I mean, the, the Fed got it wrong initially, didn't they? They thought yes. inflation was going to be transitory. They waited too long uh, to raise rates uh, and then had to slam on the brakes to get it back under control again. Yeah. What is the bigger risk for the Fed now? Is it that uh, they cut rates and then only to see inflation spike back up again? Or is the bigger risk that they wait too long now um, and the economy uh, slides into recession? What's the bigger risk for the Fed? That's a very good question. I suspect it's probably the latter. I think that they may, um, that they may exacerbate a recession. I'm not buying this everything is different this time. I'm not buying the story that high rates don't matter for an economy. I just don't buy that. Even though three quarters of all US consumers are only paying three or 4% on their mortgages because of the 30-year fixed rate mortgages, which is a point one has to keep in mind. But mm. at the end of the day, they're still consuming, they're buying cars, they're having to finance school fees, all that kind of stuff with inflation. So at some point this will bite. And I think once this excess supply of money diminishes even more, then you'll find that bite, and that's that's where the risk of overshoot on the downside is pronounced. And then, of course, without it, even if it does, then stay tight too long. The structural inflation is just also there to it's going to stay. So it's it's kind of a double-headed whammy, basically. Structural inflation and a Fed Fed making yet again mm. consistent policy errors. So, James, what's, what's the bigger risk for the, for the Fed right now? What, what do they do? Do they risk uh, cutting and seeing inflation spike up, or do they hang on and risk seeing the, uh, the, the economy slide into recession? Yeah, like many, time, many times we have seen this very high cycle. Uh, they've been stuck in a – they are now again stuck in, in, a, in a, between a, a hard place and a rock. Mm. Because uh, one, uh, on one hand, I think the, uh, uh, they, they are kind of forced – to cut rates next year because private sector uh, foreign investments on uh, uh, U.S. Treasuries are now uh, more than public sector foreign investments in U.S. Treasury first for the first time since 1998. So in other words, uh, I think the central banks around the globe are now expecting Fed to cut or else. And so that's one thing that they have to face. And the other is the really kind of value uh, FCI, the Financial Conditions Index, uh, pretty heavily. Uh, I think the Jay Powell himself made it very clear uh, the, earlier this year and several times. And uh, FCI has been on the loose uh, for uh, since the beginning of November, uh, after Jay Powell said that FCI has been doing <laughs> their jobs for raising rates. <laughs> and uh, it's been losing to such a point, I think Fed is going to, uh, reevaluate re that their target rates uh, for the end of the rate high cycle is only going to be 5.25 to 5.5. I, I think the, the, the FCI uh, is kind of actually kind of unwinding 
the tightening process that Fed has been doing for the entire year. So uh, the Fed shot so, itself yeah, in the foot there, didn't they? They shot themselves in the foot because the moment Jay Powell said that, uh, the, the very yeah, tightening exactly. that the markets were doing started to unwind. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, I think the uh, the uh, U.S. market has been trading uh, on the. Uh, uh, if, if there is a bad economic economic data, uh, the uh, the market is going to be seen as a good sign to trade for uh, the the equity market, and this has been going on uh, as long as FCI is uh, from term from tightening mm. to loosening, and uh, the the opposite could be proved by looking at the market from May to September while FCI has been tightening. Then, if that was the case, uh, the uh, bad economic data, which was uh, which we can see from the hard data and from the uh, Bloomberg or uh, City Economics Price Index, is going to be treated as bad a bad thing for the equity market. So I, I think uh, the as long at the moment that Jay Powell states that the FCI is not really what they want to want to be at uh, in, in the press conference later this week. Uh, it's going to be tightening again, and it's going to have a, a pretty strong impact on the equity market. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, the Fed does not want to see either. So yeah. I, I, I'd say, uh, yeah, they, they so are walking a fine line uh, right now. And, and I, if you ask me which one of the, uh, the risks is uh, weighs heavier in their scale, on their scale, I'd say it's still going to be economic slowdown. Okay. Um, NGO, it's a big week, isn't it, for central banks, not just the Fed. We've got half yes. the G10 uh, countries raising uh, raising rates, covering about 60% of the, uh, uh, deciding on interest rates, covering about 60% of the global economy. Are they all pretty much in the same boat, do you think, in that, um, you know, they're, um, they're seeing inflation come down pretty well um, everywhere, aren't they, in the, in the Eurozone, in, uh, in the UK, but just not, uh, just not to target yeah, and again, I, I think they want to just be probably err on the air on the side of caution. Um, and I just wanted to emphasize that whilst the financial conditions index in the U.S. is still loosening, cockeyed as it sounds, M2 has been contracting for the past couple of months. So all of these things that we use, are, I th- the, perhaps that's part of the confusion in the market. Do you follow M2? Do you follow the financial conditions index? I have yet to arrive at my own conclusion on that. But yeah, I think that, excuse me. I was going to say the monetarists are back in uh, back in favour, aren't they? They're looking at M two, um, and they're seeing uh, and the correlation between M two growth and inflation has sort of come back in line after not really working that well for quite a while. Well, that John Greenwood, of course, is a very prominent um, monetarist economist, as we all know, and well worth listening to and reading. And um, I, he does have a point that with M two contracting the economy can slow down. I, I just think that if one's looking at things only from a monetarist perspective and not putting in the random factors like politics, weather, sloth on the part of the entitled youth, things like that, I think it's very easy to err. And I think that's maybe where some of the problem mm-hmm. with monetarists has been. But nevertheless, I think that the central banks, they they want to tighten and, and be tough on this because I think they're tired of being mucked around by markets. They know that the markets are bigger than they are. They're kind of the David, the markets at the end of the day are the Goliath. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's a little bit of a of an ego trip. Who's going to be who's boss here? The markets or the or the the central banks? I think the central banks 
are putting their foot down too. I think that's what a lot of this is about. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to China because we've had the Central Economic Work Conference this week, which sets Mm. economic targets for the coming year. Uh, State media reported that China is going to focus on making concerted efforts to expand domestic demand. Uh, next mm. year. Uh, state media said we need to overcome some difficulties and challenges. That could be an understatement uh, there. They also stressed the need to take uh, measures to reduce the risks facing the property uh, sector. Now, Xinhua News Agency reported that regarding the economic work next year, the meeting called for efforts to pursue progress while ensuring stability, consolidate stability through progress and establish the new before abolishing yeah. the old. James yeah. Can you translate that for us? What on earth are they talking yeah. about? <laughs> Into English, yeah, please, it, James. Yeah, it's not <laughs> that different from the Politburo meeting, uh, which was held last Friday. And uh, the general principle governing the uh, the Central Economic uh, Work com- uh, Conference is not uh, different from uh, 10 years ago. It's still trying to pursue uh, growth while ensuring stability. And this has not changed. And mm. uh, I think the the market is correct in assuming that there were there were not going to be any detailed procedures or plans that uh, either monetary or fiscal came out of this meeting because it is in fact a directional meeting that's going to point out the direction of ec- economic developments that is going to be next year in 2024. So uh, the, if there is any expectations at all, the market is probably want to see the emphasis of this policy meeting uh, on developments more on stability. But right now, we did not really see that. And uh, high quality developments in this meeting or in this context actually refers to deleveraging, to ESG, to antitrust. Uh, I think the the uh, importance of uh, high quality developments is actually uh, lower than what we have seen in the beginning of this year or in the first quarter. So this is a good thing. And then there are the only thing that I think is worth mentioning before we see any detailed uh, support uh, or detailed stimulus packages came out is that they actually have a rank or a series of uh, of uh, policy importance, uh, a system important policies uh, that they said they were going to work on. Uh, The first is industry-wise policies. The second is macro policies. So what we are expecting is to see more policies that that are supportive to certain specific industries. And then macro policies, uh, in terms of monetary policies, we are not expecting that much because we don't see too uh, roomy of a maneuver uh, space for the Central Bank of China, PBOC, mm-hmm. to to do. Okay. And, and Zio, did you hear anything there? I mean, obviously, they're, they're talking about promoting growth again. Um, but did, did you hear yeah. anything in all of that that, uh, that tells you how exactly they are going to do this um, and why it's going to be different from what we've seen this year? No, and I, I've got to confess, I don't speak or read any speak any Chinese language or, or read it. Um, so that aside, I just think that they're putting the cart before the horse by with these brandishing statements like this ineffective, insufficient effective demand over capacity in some industries, weak public expectations, many hidden risks. Well, we kind of know all that, basically. What I think is going on is actually in the big difference to before is that the party is now 
going to increasingly introduce this party state capitalism that you and I discussed last week, Peter, which is that um, things get resolved very much by the private sector serving the party's interests. And I think that that is unsettling a lot of businesses in China. That's why the profits forecasts are down for this coming year by about 77% or something like that, because they, they're just, it's, it's uncertainty. And, and companies, whether German or American or Chinese within China, they hate uncertainty. And I think that this is very much at the root. So they can, they can, it's a bit like trying to repair a car with knitting needles, that they're trying to approach a structural problem of having the party run more of the, the real market economy that structural problem with, with cyclical issues like monetary and fiscal policy, it cannot work. And that's why I just don't think that it's it's a good buy on the, on the investment side. Mm, party state capitalism is a, is a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? If, if, it's, if it's the party and the state, it's not really capitalism. Well, that's why we, and last year, last, last week, you and I discussed this, what is the private sector in China? It's become so blurred now. Um, what actually, because you've got all this interference by the party, by the government, so you've got two people or two, two sort of units interfering. And that, of course, then doesn't exactly call for increased private sector investment going on. That's why the, the profits forecasts are down by 77%, the growth rates over the last year. And I, I, and I just can't tell our investors that this is a hot buy on China if that's going to continue. It, it could Japanize. Japanese took it. It took Japan thirty years to figure this one out. I'm much more optimistic on Japan, on Indonesia, on on India than I ever would be on China for this for the next couple of years. I suspect. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm going to get on to Japan in in a moment, James. Did, yeah. from, from what what you've heard, is it going to be different from what we've seen this year? Is there a, a substantial difference in approach now? Because what the government has been promising this year hasn't really worked out, has it? Well, there were a lot of promises made. Yes, there were a total of one point, uh, 106 point policies that were made to support the uh, private sector uh, in China over the past six months. But the thing is, I think a lot of these prom promises are remained, uh, remain to be seen if they get to be implemented. And, and the, the, oh. the thing that concerned me the most is how the foreign capital sees this whole thing uh, because yeah. uh, it's been been uh, uh, there is a, a huge exodus of capital and a huge exodus of uh, of human uh, resources and uh, the, the the thing is you, you can you can see that the uh, um, the the foreign investments in Hong Kong in the Hansen index has been uh, flowing out at a constant mm. speed of about seven hundred million US dollars per week since mm. August. And whenever the MSCI China index rose by about three to five percent, this exodus uh, uh, sped up. So uh, yeah, this and over this uh, over this uh, three to four month time, uh, we've seen a lot of policies or uh, stimulus packages or rumored stimulus packages came out, including the, the overall two trillion dollars, uh, two trillion yuan of stimulus packages and the Y list. And then you can see the foreign capital is just did not care. They just move out at a constant speed. So that's what really concerns me. Mm, okay, let's let's turn our attention to, to Japan. We had the GDP mm. uh, figures. 
earlier in the mm. week, the economy contracted NGO at 2.9% annualised. That was yeah. quite a bit worse than most people uh, were, were thinking. And, um, you know, the, the, the Japanese economy has sort of been a bright spot, hasn't it, uh, this year so far? What's gone wrong? Well, what's not gone wrongly, but what's perhaps um, curious is why the Nikkei 225 is up by 26% this year in, in, in the face of this. I'm, okay, but that's for the whole year. We kind of guessed that one. But um, why that's gone up so strongly whilst the economy has gone down and thus earnings forecasts have gone down, my sus- my suspicion is because of the, and get William Pezik to, to tell us more about this later, is that the mindset in China is beginning to change. I think that having covered Japan back in the early, late 80s, 90s, it's this mindset issue where everything just takes so darned long in Japan to get through. And I, I think that that's beginning to to maybe come in with more young people entering boards and a different mindset just in general about the about companies failing and all this kind of stuff. So I do hope at least, I can only hope that this time, whilst the economic time is an excess supply of money, excess supply of goods, like in China, that in fact the profits outlook is going to look a little bit better because of the changed mindset. And that's why I think it's a buy. It does seem, doesn't it, that the um, the, the Bank of Japan, if you could criticise it, where it's got uh, things wrong, is that it wants yes. to create conf- uh, inflation, but without really a concrete plan for how is it going to get wages up at the same time so that people feel better off? Yeah. Well, you, you could, of course, argue that that's, wages aren't really the, the Bank of Japan's problem, if you will. Um, but I, I, I see your point that they need to be doing something more holistically about that, and that would be a structural change in labor legislation in China, in, in Japan. Mm. So again, that's something that's something worth asking William because I'm not I'm not on the ground. I can't cover that. Um, but I think that this timorous monetary policy, they're going to have to continue creating, even if they do tighten a little bit, just a little bit, by removing that zero interest rate cap on the short term rates. I think they will have to still keep pumping money into the system just to make sure that it doesn't get into an excess demand for money because that then would really kill the economy off. Mm. James, what what do you think about um, Japan? The Bank of Japan isn't meeting this week, but it is meeting um, next week. It seems to have got itself in a bit of a mess over what it's going to do about its negative (laughs) interest rate policy and its yield curve control, whether or not it's going to remove it or not and under what circumstances. Exactly. The YCC... uh, uh, change it was expected to be the uh, biggest game changer of this year, but again, what we've seen uh, in throughout the year is only the yen moving uh, dramatically. Last week, uh, last in the last two weeks, not that mm-hmm. much implications on the global markets. And uh, I think you're right that both the uh, the governor of the uh, BOJ this time and his predecessor actually had ruined their reputation or credibility trying to establish a, a roadmap for the YCC control or the, for the reverse of the YCC control. Uh, I, I really don't know, because last time uh, the YCC uh, uh, movement boundaries were expanded. And then before that, uh, the governor of the, the, the current the predecessor of the current BOJ governor said that whenever he moves or expands the boundaries of the ten-year uh, YCC, it means he's gonna uh, raise rates. But then after the last the YCC move, uh, uh, maneuver last year, uh, the BOJ did not move any rate decisions. And this time, uh, the the current governor of BOJ 
basically says he's going to raise rates very soon. And then the economic data uh, hits him in the face. So mm-hmm. I, I really don't know how the market is going to or, or how the BOG is going to be uh, carrying out um, uh, expectation management from now on. It's, it's, uh, it's tough for them. And how does the Bank of Japan get out of this? Because maybe the window of opportunity for them to start weaning themselves off of this negative interest rate policy is closed now because now they're in the situation where if they're going to raise rates, they're going to have to do it when the economy's uh, contracted quite sharply. Yeah, so that uh, I, I fully agree with that with that policy dilemma. I think maybe they, maybe they would counter this with some fiscal policy adjustments and, and get and raise even more debt and then spend even more. But mm. I, I'm, I don't disagree with you. I think there's a conundrum going on. But again, outside of that, the psychological point of mine is that with the mindset change going on, that you will find wages, I suspect, picking up a little bit more next year just because that's what the younger guys want in, in the corporate boards. Okay, James, just finally, just wanted to get your thoughts about the Hong Kong market. The big news Mm. this week is uh, India's National Stock Exchange has overtaken uh, the Hong Kong market in terms of of market cap. Now, obviously, these things do fluctuate around quite a bit, but it does seem this time to be maybe um, there are some long-term trends and forces behind this. Uh, Yeah, I surely hope hope, hope not. Uh, I'm still a believer of mean reversion. And uh, I think that what comes down must come up. Uh, but the thing is, uh, if we are talking about cyclical downturn, we implies there will be a round bottom or a triangular bottom. But uh, right now, we're probably seeing looking at a rectangular bottom. So, which means <laughs> the downturn is going to last a lot longer than we expected. And th- and 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 especially the, we're now uh, at the end of the year. So the mixture of pessimism with uh, lackluster, uh, being lackluster. So it's, it's not really that good for the market. Let's just uh, uh, after wait and see after the holidays, like everything else. <laughs> okay, so a good point to end uh, this morning about the uh, the shape of people's bottoms. There we go. <laughs> okay, good to speak to you both. Thank you very much. You heard there James Wong, who's Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and Von Fowl, who is Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Good morning, William. Good morning, Peter. So the Japanese economy we saw this week contracted 2.9% on an annualized basis in the uh, third quarter. Uh, that was compared with the preliminary data of 2.1% for what's, uh, what's happening here, William, because um, the, the economy seems to be uh, sliding quite fast at the moment. Well, you know, in a word, China, um, you know, when your biggest trading partner is is just uh, stumbling for the most part, it's, it's a rough scenario for Japan. I think Japan's other problem is that you've got basically 11 Federal Reserve rate hikes uh, over 18 months, basically circling the economy as well. So you put it all together, confidence is weak in the Japanese economy, China is weak, U.S. rates are high. And, you know, it's no surprise that Prime Minister Kishida's Approval ratings are ending the year at 21%. I mean, that makes Joe Biden seem pretty popular at the moment. So 2023 is not ending in the way that Prime Minister Kishida had hoped on any level. And I'd say the same thing for investors in Japan, because there was a lot of speculation that the BOJ, this would be the year when the Bank of Japan stepped away from quantitative easing. And um, it doesn't seem that way. 
seems that it's going to be hard for them to do that when the economy is contracting at that sort of rate. Maybe the window is closed for them to, to now get themselves out of uh, negative interest rates. Exactly. And so the contraction you're talking about, uh, I think in many ways, there's a lot of speculation that it is carried over into the current quarter. There's not a lot of data at the moment suggesting that GDP has stabilized, never mind uh, stopped contracting. So odds are Japan will end uh, 2023 in a recession, not a deep recession, but again, not really where Japan wants to be and not a, a scenario that uh, lends itself to the BOJ altering policy. And I think mm. when uh, BOJ Governor Oweda looks at the China factor, looks at U.S. yields being at 17, you know, near 17-year highs, and looks at weak domestic demand, is this really the moment to be pulling the trigger and letting the yen surge, say, 10%, 15% in the year ahead? I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. But the BOJ seems to have got itself in a mess over what exactly it is going to do, doesn't it? I mean, last week, um, people assumed from uh, Governor Kazuo Ueda's comments that he was considering that. And then they quickly walked back uh, those uh, comments. So the yen has been sort of spiking and then falling back again. Similarly, the, uh, the Nikkei 225, they, they seem to be having a bit of a communication problem. Exactly. My local bank here keeps on sending me emails, you know, currency spike alerts, which <laughs> is kind of alarming to wake up, wake up in the morning and see those. You're right. I think, you know, in many ways, the BOJ has tried to, you know, sort of have its cake and eat it too in recent months. It's done a variety of small tweaks that are aimed at release, uh, re- relieving the tension between, you know, the, the gap between U.S. and Japanese rates. But I think that those tweaks have set the in some ways set the stage for expectations that the BOGA would be pivoting away from QE. And then you see this 2.9% contraction in the third quarter, which throws cold water on that. And I think in many ways, BOJ officials have spent the last few days saying to markets, uh, don't expect too much in, in the days ahead. And so I think the BOJ in some ways invited this speculation with, with their tweaks so far, which suggested that they're ready for bigger action, which I think they're not ready for at the moment. Mm. It it could be interesting next year, couldn't it? Because if the markets are right, uh, the Fed is going to start cutting rates, maybe in March, possibly in May, depending upon uh, if you believe Fed fund futures markets or not. And the Bank of Japan is going to be raising them. This, This could cause some quite big dislocations in the markets, couldn't it? It could indeed, because you have to start worrying about the yen carry trade, right? I mean, mm. so 23 years of quantitative easing have turned Japan into the essentially the biggest creditor nation. And you've had hedge funds and banks around the world, which have made standard practice of borrowing cheaply in yen and redeploying that money into higher yielding assets in Latin America and South Africa, all around Asia and New Zealand. And the second the yen, you know, sort of snaps in a certain direction, a lot of those positions have to be in many ways closed. And so 2024 could be a very chaotic year in terms of not only Fed policy, but what the BOJ does. And, you know, at the moment, the Nikkei stock average here in Japan is near 33-year highs, which creates quite a disconnect in terms of where the economy is, where the stock market is, and expectations for the BOJ. So I'm thinking anybody expecting to have a very long vacation in 2024 might want to rethink that. Yeah, and um, it's going to have implications for the yen, for the Japanese government bond market, isn't it? Because uh, um, you know we could see the yen surge next year, which will go and unwind. You know some of the benefits that the economy has had from from the weaker yen. 
Exactly. And I think you've also seen some efforts by the Fed, too, to throttle back uh, expectations for aggressive uh, Fed rate hikes in, in the year ahead. I think, you know, inflation is not rising at the moment. It's stabilized, but it's still at heightened levels. And there's a big question as to whether the Federal Reserve will be cutting rates uh, at the pace that the market is currently pricing in. And then there's, there's questions about whether the BOJ will be moving in the opposite direction and tightening policy. And I, I really do think that 2024 will be a fascinating year from a central bank standpoint. And then there's the People's Bank of China. Um, you know, what do they do? Nothing would help China's economy faster at the moment than letting the Chinese currency weaken, mm. which is something President Xi Jinping doesn't want to do. But it's always a, a risk in the year ahead. And what does that mean for the BOJ and for the yen? Again, I think 20, we always say this at the end of the year, that next year could be fascinating. But I really do think 2024 is really going to be quite a year. Mm. And what are um, Japanese fund managers going to do? Are they going to start repatriating assets back to Japan if, if this plays out? Yes. I mean, I think you already see some of that. Uh, there is an effort to repatriate assets. I mean, Japan has been, a, a you know, for all of its problems, Japan has been a unique kind of safe haven, if you will, over the last several months of global, uh, you know, global volatility. And, you know, you've had Moody's Investor Service warn about downgrades, not only in the U.S., but in China. Uh, Japan has been uh, in, in some ways removed from that process. And so Japan has been a bit of a safe haven. And that's partly why the, the, the Nikkei average is ending the year near 33-year highs, despite uncertainty about the end, despite the prime minister's low approval ratings and the lack of financial reforms happening at the moment. And so I really do think that, again, not, not to be a broken record here, but 2024, wow. Mm. <laughs> for, for, for many reasons. Oh, and then you mentioned uh, Prime Minister uh, Kushida. Is he going to survive, do you think, next year? Well, you know, by the end of the year, I believe in by October, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party will have to hold an election. And with approval ratings at 21 percent, you'd think that he's uh, sort of dead man walking politically. Anything below 30 percent tends to be the danger zone for Japanese prime ministers. But, you know, Kishida at the moment benefits from the fact that the opposition parties are in complete disarray. But mm -hmm. as 2024 begins to unfold and his party realizes how unpopular he is and the scandals that have unfolded in recent months, I wouldn't be surprised to see Prime Minister Kishida's days being numbered at this point. Um, I really don't see much happening here in terms of policy decisions or pivots that could boost his approval ratings above 30% in the months ahead. And that's bad news for Joe Biden, because Joe Biden has forged a pretty good relationship with Prime Minister Kushida at a moment when he's trying to, you know, basically set Japan up as a, as a bulwark against China's rise. And do they have um, a, a viable alternative in the LDP to take over if it's not uh, Kushida? Well, I mean, the most likely scenario would be for former Foreign Minister uh, Hayashi, to become the next candidate for for prime minister. And I think you, the fact that uh, when Prime Minister Kushida did his most recent cabinet reshuffle, he fired Hayashi in part to, to uh, take him out of, the, out of the running, if you will. So mm. I think, uh, you know, Mr. Hayashi is someone to watch. Um, beyond that, it's really hard to say. You have Seiko Noda, who is uh, LDP bigwig. She would be the first female prime minister um, if, uh, if the, the party pivoted in her direction, which could make for an interesting year. But I think the bigger issue here is that the opposition parties are in complete disarray, which is good news for the mm -hmm. LDP. But again, Kishida really will have a hard time surviving another six months with these, these kinds of approval ratings.
I mean, Kashid has also uh, benefited from the relationship with uh, with President Biden. Is is Japan having to put any thought at all to what could happen uh, if President Trump is re-elected next year? I think people are losing sleep here uh, over that scenario. Um, you know, in, in many ways, the, the chaos that you saw in the U.S. between 2017 and um, 2021, when uh, President Trump was was in the White House. Is something that Japan does not relish returning to, not only in terms of economic policy and currency policy, but just, you know, Trump returning to Twitter and taking on taking on Asia and China. And so I think, you know, Prime Minister Kishida, one reason why he's very happy to see uh, Prime Minister uh, President Biden uh, stick around for, for another term is that I think that this relationship between Tokyo and Washington is an important one at a moment when, in many ways, the democracies of Asia are trying to join together to remind China that the future is is not exactly uh, China's to take anytime soon. Okay, boy, it's going to be an interesting year for all sorts of reasons next year, economically, and also for Indeed. very key elections going on, aren't there, uh, next year as well in the US, in Japan, in Taiwan, in India. It's going to be a, a, an interesting year. Oh, yes. And we look forward to talking uh, to you next year, William, about uh, about some of those things. Thank you very much indeed. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Peter. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news from across Asia to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investments. With a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.